and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. This week, we dug into the future of education, but a bit differently than in ways we've explored previously. We talked homeschooling. COVID-19 has placed 74 million children in the U.S. in some version of homeschooling overnight. And innovation in education is a massive opportunity. Thriving in a complex world requires creativity and original thinking, but our education system is designed for mass production, not unlocking imagination and individuality. Simply put, we won't be able to solve 2050's challenges with an educational supply chain built for the 1950s. Now is the time to dig into homeschooling from first principles, and it's why I was so excited this week to chat with Ryan Delk, founder and CEO of Primer. Primer is homeschool with superpowers. As Ryan described to me in our conversation, the education system is systematically underestimating our next generation, and Primer is building a learning experience well-suited for 2020. We dug into a number of topics in this conversation, the growth of homeschooling, distance learning versus homeschooling pedagogy, the benefits of unencumbered creative time on learning and development, why homeschooling gets a bad rap, and how teachers are the current heroes of our time. Welcome, Ryan. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, Ryan, excited to have you on the show today um, because you have a very unique story. And, and I want to dive into Primer and your perspective on the future of homeschooling pretty deeply. But before we do that, tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, so uh, given the context of, of, uh, of this conversation, it's probably useful. Uh, we can start pretty early. Uh, so I was homeschooled uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade. And my mom was a public school teacher um, in Atlanta, and then we moved to Florida when I was young. And she took me; she actually took me to uh, public school orientation um, because she was pretty pro public school. She actually wrote her uh, one of her papers when she was getting her teaching degree on why homeschooling should be illegal and why it's the worst form of education. And she took me to the kindergarten orientation in, in Florida, and uh, and she was like, "I can't, I can't leave you here." And Florida public schools uh, in the in the '90s, the early '90s, were uh, quite bad. And so um, she decided to homeschool me. She thought she'd homeschool me for a year. And then fast forward 16 years later, she homeschooled me and my two younger siblings, all K through eight. So I was homeschooled from kindergarten through eighth grade and then ended up going to uh, a traditional high school, uh, a large public university, and then dropping out to move up to San Francisco about a decade ago uh, to start building tech companies. And so you've taken a background in homeschooling and then uh, startups, as you mentioned, in tech companies over the last you know 10 or so years. Uh, in San Francisco, and you've taken that and you've built Primer. So tell us what Primer is and why you started the company. Yeah, so Primer, um, so I, I was obviously homeschooled myself, and it actually, the origins for this were when we had our first kid a few years ago, we started looking into education options in San Francisco. And San Francisco, like a lot of major cities, private schools are extremely expensive. Um, public schools can be challenging in San Francisco, particularly it's a lottery system. And so geographically, it can be really challenging. You can have really long uh, you know, commutes to, to, from, to and from school each day. Um, and we just didn't necessarily want our kids to be uh, kind of educated in the traditional way, especially thinking about how vibrant and uh, how fondly I look back on my education experience being homeschooled. And so I started researching homeschooling uh, kind of in preparation for wanting to figure out education for our kids. And I figured, I sort of thought there was two things. So one, I thought there would be um, someone had sort of built like the stripe for homeschooling where they took this you know, complex thing um, you know, basically all the regulations of figuring out how to get started, the curriculum, figuring out how to have community, all these problems, coaching to figure out how you can become a better homeschooler. 
and had made something, I was certain that someone would have made something that kind of, you know, best in class tech product to make that all really easy. And then two, I was also sort of hopeful that someone had figured out a way to create, uh, you know, a network of homeschooling families in a way where people that would want their kids to have a homeschool-like experience could sort of have their kids participate in almost like a full-time in-home co-op um, that where they could still work, you know, full-time or part-time and not actually be doing the homeschooling themselves. And so I started looking into this and uh, a few years ago, I was just kind of blown away that Basically, I was stuck doing the same things that my mom did, uh, you know, however long, 25, whatever, many years ago, uh, trying to figure out how to get started. You know, she was calling up friends and talking to people, you know, at churches or various different organizations to get started. And I'm, I'm just posting in Facebook groups asking the exact same question along with thousands of other people asking the exact same questions. And so all that's changed is the medium. We're still all reinventing the wheel. Um, and it was just really striking to me that no one had, had built this. And so as I started thinking about it more, it's been about a year talking to a bunch of homeschooling families um, and former homeschoolers, current homeschoolers, and really identify that I think this is a, a really big opportunity and um, not just a big opportunity because there's a bunch of homeschoolers that are really underserved, but because I think homeschooling can have such a dramatic impact on the outcomes of kids. And if you can make homeschooling more accessible um, and, and allow more kids uh, to have an education, it's really optimized for them being uh, as creative and ambitious um, and learning to think for themselves as possible, I think we can have a tremendous impact on the world. And so that's how it all kind of came together for us. Yeah, well, there's a couple of interesting things that you just said there. You know, one is, of course, the, you know, the kind of full stack framing of, of having an end-to-end -end solution around homeschooling. And we'll, we'll talk a bunch more about that. But one, one of the things I think is interesting from what you're saying, uh, and I want to start here, is the landscape being similar, you know, to when your mom was homeschooling you and your siblings. So let, let's set the stage on the homeschooling market, because I think it's fascinating when you think about the la the landscape of tools and such continuing to be the same, um, even though the, the homeschooling market itself over the last 40 years has grown, has grown pretty organically actually quite rapidly. So talk a little bit more about the dynamic of, you know, just what's going on in homeschooling, and we'll get to also COVID, but in a pre-COVID world, talk a little bit more about the growth of homeschooling and, and that dynamic. Yeah, so homeschooling, uh, yeah, so it's grown reasonably strong organically over the last 20 years. Um, I mean, my family was sort of, I wouldn't say we were like pioneers, but there was, uh, you know, depending on what data you look at, there was probably one-tenth the number of homeschoolers that there are today, back when I was homeschooled. Um, so certainly nowhere near as many. It's grown three, five, seven percent year over year, depending on the year, uh, basically for the last 20 years. And what's interesting is that homeschooling um, had its roots in this sort of very countercultural, uh, you know, kind of response. Interestingly, uh, both from the right and the left on like the political spectrum, and um, a lot of people that were homeschooling or that were the first sort of homeschoolers were homeschooling uh, for some spe specific sort of ideological reason, whether it was related to um, you know their views of religion or their views of politics or their views of you know not wanting their kids indoctrinated with certain views, um, and it was you know I think broadly it was less academically motivated and what's happened over the last you know 20 years is that um, uh, there was a, a recent study that said that 80 percent of families cite basically academic outcomes as the number one reason of their homeschool um, mm. and so you know and there's all sorts of other things on that list like kids having disabilities and not feeling like the school's serving them well um, processing disorders all sorts of things that, that also drive it but the primary driver is not academic outcomes and so i think that is the single biggest shift and i think what's interesting is that the um, homeschooling has a huge branding problem because it's sort of still looked at as this thing that is sort of, uh, you know, either like radical right or radical left on the political spectrum uh, that are sort of like doing this, this thing to sort of make sure that their kids aren't like indoctrinated by the state. 
um, rather than looking at it as like a totally different structure for education and specifically a structure where it allows kids to pursue their interests and things that they're excited about and use learning, uh, allow learning to happen through those interests. And I think that's kind of uh, the, the really key uh, structural difference with homeschooling. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting how that, uh, one of the things we've talked about a lot is, you know, how, how can you sort of uh, help, help educate people on what homeschooling actually looks like in 2020? Because uh, in many ways, people's perception of it is still t- stuck 20 years ago. Well, in 2020 becomes the interesting time to have that conversation because seemingly overnight, you know, 74 million kids in the U.S. are effectively being homeschooled, right, propelled by COVID. And and anecdotally, just, you know, from a number of conversations I I hear from a lot of young parents, especially now, um, is is folks are digging into homeschooling and and thinking about it as a more permanent option. What have you guys seen? How has COVID, um, you know, been for the business as you're launching products and, and really kicking off? Yeah, so we, I mean, so our, we started working on Primer late last year, and we certainly, obviously, could never have predicted, uh, you know, start working on a homeschooling company, and then uh, seven months later, uh, you know, every kid in the U.S. is being homeschooled, um, and so we, you know, I mean, for us, it's, there's, I think, a, a big distinction between, like, distance learning and homeschooling, and so for us, we're really focused on the people that, uh, you know, want to homeschool going into this next school year. We want to be the best solution for them. Um, and I think what's interesting is that there's, I think, uh, a number of families who have sort of like leaned in and tried to figure out what homeschooling actually means and how to homeschool well. Um, and then there's another uh, other number of families that are sort of doing distance learning, you know, basically taking what the public school system or private school system is giving them um, and essentially trying to do that at home through Zoom and various other things and sort of equating that with homeschooling. And um, I think that those, you know, th- those are two very different things and they, they sort of are easily equated because you're sort of doing school at home, but it's actually quite different. Um, and we can definitely dig into that. But the other thing I think it's, that's useful just to note is that um, I talked to a bunch of public school teachers and I think that they are absolute heroes for the way that they are trying to navigate and figure out, uh, you know, basically turn on a dime and figure out how to do school, uh, you know, through distance learning. And so, you know, I think it's important, it's important to not get lost in this conversation that, um, you know, the teacher, the teachers themselves, I think, I think there's a lot of frustration about the way that, you know, education in school stuff specifically for public and private schools has gone over the past four months. But I think the teachers themselves, uh, you know, have, I, at least that I've seen have done a really heroic job and are really trying to step up and deliver the best experience possible for kids. It's just obviously extremely challenging to trans- transfer a, you know, 30 person, 30, 30 student to one teacher classroom experience into to a virtual distance learning environment. I, I like that framing because actually we have we've a, a teacher in my family and, and she's going through um, you know I kind of we feel like we witness day in and day out the things she's doing for her students and it's it's nothing less than heroic exactly as you framed it um, but it, it's challenging right and I I think the one of the nuances I, I want you to go a little bit deeper on Ryan um, is and I think it's quite insightful is is this differential between distance learning and and homeschooling so a, a lot of the challenges again I, I hear in conversations or have with folks is I think conflating both of those concepts. I read a really interesting article lately, you know, that made the argument that, you know, using this time to reduce, you know, structure and increase creativity, you know, have kids follow their passion, et cetera, at scale could have the impact of producing a generation that's just more, you know, empathetic, patient, resilient, thoughtful. And, and I think actually what that's, what that article is speaking to, if I layer it, you know, accurately based on what you're saying, is more of the idea around true homeschooling pedagogy versus distance learning. Talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say the differential between distance learning and homeschooling. Yeah, so I think you, you that article sounds like, I would love to read it, it's, it sounds like it it's kind of sums it up, but 
for me, I think uh, the, the structure of a traditional school environment, um, there's, there's two things that I think are really important to understand about it. The first is that um, it is, it is designed, it, teachers are sort of required to teach to the lowest common denominator. Um, and it's, uh, I don't think it's, uh, you know, a bad part of the system at all. I think it's actually necessary in some ways. Um, but that means that there, the pace at which the class moves, um, is defined by a very specific set of constraints around ensuring that the, the kids that are learning the slowest are able to, you know, progress through the material, uh, or at least master the material, have the best shot at mastering the material. And so what that means is that the, the entire structure of how you think about testing, how you think about evaluations, how you think about the pace of learning, um, is all based on something that's not actually personalized to any one individual child, but is sort of optimized for you know, th this group of 25 or 30 or however many kids. And so um, that's the first thing I think is really important when you think about distance learning. And then the second thing is that teachers are, because of that, teachers, I think this is one of the big flaws in the school system is the incentive structure. Teachers are, um, you know, their incentive structure is to not have kids fail. Their incentive structure is not to have kids, uh, you know, radically succeed. And so there's no bonus system in place for teachers that gives them asymmetric upside if they have five students that are like, you know, excelling and, and going to skip a grade next year or jump into EP or, you know, there's none of that. There's certain accolades that you can win. There's certain awards you can win, but it's very, very minimal. And on the, on the sort of converse of that, you have, uh, you know, basically if, if a student, if, if a teacher has too many students failing, they get fired. And so you have almost asymmetric downside in a situation, in a system where I think you actually would want asymmetric upside. Um, so that teachers can actually invest, uh, you know, and sort of have the right incentive structure in place. And so when it comes to transmitting all that into distance learning and basically repackaging this whole, uh, you know, learning experience into something that can be delivered via Zoom and uh, Google Docs and all that, um, you have a, a very, very siloed experience for the kids, which is doing these worksheets or doing these projects or whatever it might be, um, in a way that is still structured and optimized for a group of 30 or 40 kids. And so where I think the, the sort of where distance learning would end and homeschooling would begin is when you decouple, you know, my, my progress as an individual student from the progress of the other 30 kids. And so if I'm interested in, you know, if we're learning about the Wright brothers and I get really interested in, you know, the way that sort of the, the evolution of airplanes, uh, you know, from what the Wright brothers flew to, uh, you know, 50, 60 years later, all of a sudden we have jets, we have all these, these interesting developments that have happened and I want to go study that. I can jump in and start going after that. I don't have to stay on the Wright brothers if I've already mastered that and I'm, and I'm getting excited about learning about physics and how jet engines work. I can go start learning about physics and, and all the science around how jet engines work because I'm interested in that versus if I was preparing for a test on, you know, the Wright brothers and, uh, you know, how they were, how they, how they sort of, how, how many minutes their first plane flew or the first plane that actually flew and, uh, you know, where they did it in North Carolina and all these different things. Um, you know, I might, I might sort of be stuck in this, in this environment for just learning about the Wright brothers when I really want to be learning about jet engines. And so I think the, the distinction is how do you unlock and how do you enable kids to go pursue these things that they're excited about, not just for the sake of pursuing them, but actually using them as vehicles for learning and education to happen through these things that they're sort of organically interested in. And I think if there's one thing about homeschooling that, you know, is really where the magic is, um, it's that. And, and we've all seen kids get super excited about something. Uh, you know, I, I watch my son, you know, he gets, gets super excited about something like he's into learning Spanish right now. I never once told him he should learn Spanish. I never once, you know, asked him that he asked him to work on his vocabulary. I never once asked him for any of this, but almost mm. every day he comes to me and says, Hey, can we read a book in Spanish? And so I read him a book in Spanish. Uh, and I do it because he's excited about it. I'm not telling him, Hey, you need to learn French. I'm just, you know, helping him pursue Spanish because he's excited about Spanish. 
And I think that's like the core ethos that really differentiates homeschooling from uh, distance learning. So talk, talk a little bit more about how you instill that ethos practically in some of the different kinds of products and such you guys are building at Primer. Um, you, you framed it in your founding letter. I really liked this statement, which was, we won't be able to solve 2050s challenges with an educational supply chain built for 1950. And when I hear that statement, it speaks to me a lot about some of the things you just talked about, right? Pace, optimizing for lowest common denominator, incentive structures, right? Not having any asymmetric upside. Talk a little bit more about, you know, when you think about Primer and, and actually building the product and building the, building the products and, and building the company, what are the elements in which you actually translate that ethos, you know, into practical products for, for parents and students? Sure. Yeah, so that, that line about the educational supply chain, um, really, I think what's interesting about school is, and there's a lot of people have talked about this, is that um, the way that our kids are educated looks almost identical to, uh, you know, to what it looked like 100 years ago, and certainly identical to 50 years ago. And what's interesting is that we're spending more money uh, per student um, and a lot of people actually think public schools are getting worse. That's not true. Public schools are basically, from an outcome perspective, staying the same. Mm. Um, but we're spending more money per student to get the same outcomes, which is sort of where the problem is. Um, and I think it's actually, my, my view on this is actually that the people talk about how the public school system is failing or the public school system is, you know, doing a disservice to kids. I think it's actually just unbelievably challenging to design any sort of education system that could work for 70 or 80 million kids a year. Um, you know, at all. Like kids are so different, they're so unique. And the idea that you could design any system that would somehow, you know, work fluidly for batches of 15, 20, 30 kids, uh, you know, across the country, tens of millions of these kids is, I think, uh, you know, at, at, at sort of optimistically, it's extremely challenging and probably more realistically, it's impossible. And so um, I think maybe there's an argument around like, is it even, would it even be possible to deliver, you know, an education system at the scale, um, you know, that actually drives the kind of outcomes we want for our kids. And so to me, uh, what homeschooling is, is it's an opportunity to, when I think about what I want, uh, you know, what I want for my kids and what I think education should be. I think education is about helping kids reach their potential. And the ideal education is one that gives kids a path uh, to, to, to over a series of years, uh, you know, puts them on a path as they reach adulthood uh, to reach their potential. And so uh, whether that's through, uh, you know, and for every kid that's going to look different, their potential is going to be different, what they're interested in is going to look different, and the, and the, potential, the, the path to get there is going to look different. And so for me, homeschooling is about unlocking all the different paths that exist whether it's, you know, using, uh, you know, jet engines to learn about reading and learn about science and learn about math and using that as a, as a window into all these subjects and a vehicle with which you can teach all these things, or whether it's a kid who is, who, who actually is really interested in a bunch of different types of subjects and just wants to kind of go into, go deep on all these different things. Um, I think that's, that's the power of, of homeschooling. And that's what, to me, that's what can unlock these really interesting outcomes. We just published um, an interview with a woman named Laura Dimming, who's the founder of Longevity Fund, um, and she was homeschooled in New Zealand, and then she ended up, I think, going to MIT at, at age 14, and she was just, she was just obsessed with longevity and biology and all these different sort of things that she wanted to dive really deep on, and homeschooling allowed her to make a tremendous amount of progress in a very short amount of time, such that she got into MIT at age 14. And I'm not saying that, you know, every kid should get into MIT at age 14 or that's, a, that's even a good goal to shoot for. That's not at all what I'm saying. Um, but the point is, is it unlocks, you know, infinite outcomes for each kid where they can sort of dictate the pace um, and, and the way in which they engage with learning, which I think is really extremely powerful. And I think we're, we're really underestimating kids when we take away that agency from them. 
Well, I think the underestimating piece is, is really interesting because one of the most one of the things that was actually most interesting to me in preparing for our discussion, Ryan, was looking at the data around homeschooling outcomes. And it, it was actually, you know, the way that you're framing it and laying it out is very intuitive, right? That it's it's obviously always difficult. Difficult to, whenever you de design a system for masses, you're going to have constraints and trade-offs. Um, but I think as I was looking at the data, it was actually counterintuitive to me, you know, for some reason that homeschool kids actually have better outcomes pretty much across the board, academic performance, social, emotional, psychological development is, is the fact that I'm surprised, you know, by that data set, right, around outcomes. You were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, this idea of kind of the, the brand, brand stigma attached to homeschooling being, you know, a function of, you know, either the radical right or the radical left. Is that is that what it is here? Is that is the challenge here actually kind of the brand awareness uh, and and the stigma around homeschooling that has to be beat? Because the data actually looked quite compelling. Yeah, so I, I have an interesting theory on this, which is um, because home, it's 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 basically a self fulfilling cycle now because because homeschooling is this sort of off brand thing that's uh, you know people might feel embarrassed that they were homeschooled or they might not talk about it that much publicly. Um, I think it actually perpetuates this cycle. Um, and what's interesting is if you think about like Harvard or Yale or any of these like sort of iconic educational institutions, a lot of our perception of these institutions is driven by the people that went there and yep. knowing that, you know, this many U.S. presidents or this many Supreme Court judges or, um, you know, this many CEOs or whoever graduated from these institutions because they talk about it all the time. If you graduated from Harvard, uh, you know, it's in every bio. It's every time you speak at a conference, they introduce you, you know, I mentioned that. Um, and it becomes this sort of, so the alumni essentially create the brand for the institution. And there's all sorts of other, you know, implicit things that are good about these institutions and great places to do research and all that. But the alumni have this huge, huge impact on the brand of the institution. And so because I think people, you know, uh, you know, at best, they don't often volunteer that they're homeschooled. Um, and at worst, they actually actively kind of avoid talking about it. Um, you, you get into the cycle where homeschooling doesn't have the same benefit of that sort of branding engine. Um, because actually, there's all sorts of incredible people that were homeschooled um, that are doing amazing work. Uh, and as you mentioned, even sort of stripping out the outliers, even just looking at the median outcomes, um, when you control for um, socioeconomics, when you control for all sorts of variables, even the same zip codes, same income brackets, et cetera, home scores outperform um, the average in those against students that are the same age um, in those control groups. And so uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is sort of, and this is the, we're doing a series of interviews right now on our blog uh, with different people that are homeschooled, just helping people tell their story. Because I think when people read that people that they look up to or that they, you know, perceive to be doing really interesting work and read that they were homeschooled. And then most importantly, read that homeschooling was a vital part of the journey to get there. Um, it can really help sort of change the perception uh, in a pretty dramatic way. One of the biggest outside in skepticisms I'd have just about the data that I was reading, and I, I'm sure you have a pretty compelling and thoughtful perspective on this, um, is is the question, question raised in my mind whether um, you know, the, the outcome, the better outcomes across the board, across, you know, academic, psychological development, everything we talked about. Um, my, the question for me was, is there an element of homeschooled children being inherently privileged, which is, you know, again, to pull off a, a homeschooled situation, do you fall into a two parent household, the economic flexibility to facilitate, you know, et cetera. It was interesting to me when I was looking at the data, at least broken down by, uh, ethnicity that homeschooled children are actually a relatively diverse eth um, uh, ethnic population. Is that the case socioeconomically, or um, if if not the case, 
are we thinking about you know a world in which distance learning might not be compatible with you know diversity and inclusion, but um, true you know new age homeschooling could be? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, two two thoughts on that. So one is certainly the immovable barrier to homeschooling right now, uh, in almost every case, is one one uh, you know parent or caregiver that is able to dedicate you know multiple hours per day um, to facilitating you know education experiences with kids. And whether that is you know one parent or both parents trading off or you know someone else, um, you know varies by family. But that in and of itself, you know, if you're if you're in a situation where both parents need to be working or a single parent household, can be extremely challenging. And so I think of that as sort of the core immovable barrier to you know more people homeschooling in a lot of cases. And we hear all the time from parents who uh, want to homeschool that you know are basically, like, hey, is there any option for me to figure this out? But I you know, I'm a single parent or both of us work. And we have some things, uh, you know, that we're not ready to talk about now, but that we will work on in the future that are going to make that easy. And that's something that I'm really, really excited about because I think that's what that's what really can start to democratize access to homeschooling experiences for kids. Um, but the second thing, on, on more specifically on the socioeconomic piece, what's interesting about homeschooling is that you often have um, it's almost like an inverse bell curve where you have um, there's actually a lot of adoption of homeschooling um, in lower income families. And this is actually for me growing up, my dad actually worked uh, three jobs so that my mom could stay home and homeschool us mm. because the public schools were not very good and we couldn't afford private school. And there would be no path to us affording, you know, three kids in private school, regardless, you know, my, my, there was just no way for that to happen. Um, but we could make, my dad could make enough money that, uh, you know, working three jobs, my mom could stay home and she could homeschool us. Um, and even then my dad actually was still very involved in our education, taught us Latin, he taught us math, taught us a lot of science. And so there was still, you know, a very sort of split, uh, split responsibility of homeschooling, which I actually think is really, really important for it not to just be one parent driving the homeschool experience. And so, um, I, I, I do think it's, it's more nuanced than, um, than would be the case if you just looked at it. Um, and, and we have a ton of families that have reached out that have said, Hey, like we've been really looking for something like primer. Um, and have, have expressed a similar story to mine where they're homeschooling because they, you know, the public school system, they feel like is not a good fit for their kids. Either they, you know, were falling behind and they wanted to give them, be able to give them extra cycles and extra attention, or they were really far ahead and they were sort of being held back by the system, but they can't afford private school. They can't afford any of their options. And so they turned to homeschooling. Um, and so that, that I think is a very real dynamic and, and one that probably doesn't get talked about as much. Well, and I'd have to imagine the democratizing of access part actually can add in the, you know, to the inverse of kind of the way I laid out the problem, right? So the, the other way to kind of take a cut at it would be that if you're actually democratizing access, um, you're actually helping, you know, folks across different socioeconomic classes, et cetera, and actually making the process, uh, making homeschooling more accessible. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to deep dive deep, a, a little bit deeper into that uh, democratization of access. And and maybe from the perspective of innovation and homeschooling and just a larger trend, you know, that's going on um, in society today, which is more so internet as a community. What, one of the things that I've been really excited about in education, uh, which I think also applies to homeschooling, is the idea of democratized access when you think about internet as a community. So what I mean by that is, you know, with the internet, we move into a world where really the best teachers in the world are going to be accessible. And, and we can talk about the incentive structure. I think, frankly, they'll be compensated more appropriately. But the best teachers in the world will be accessible to hundreds of thousands of students versus students being restricted to teachers, you know, in your physical geographic school zone. And I kind of think of it as the Peloton versus, you know, soul cycle paradigm. When, when, you, uh, when you think about primer, and again, from what I've, what I've seen outside in, 
you you guys started with compliance, you started with library tools, and you're now preparing to launch internet-based communities. Talk a little bit more about the chronology of the products to date, but but spend some time focusing on the idea of communities and you know whether the way I laid it out resonates or you think about it differently. Yeah, it definitely resonates. There, one of the things that I think is interesting about homeschooling, and we talked about this a little bit early on, is that the the internet has has certainly created. A, you know, there's a lot more resources available, um, and I guess in one sense, it's democratized access, but it's actually made things. Uh, a lot of families will tell you it's actually made things way more complicated for them, mm. um, because with the homeschooling market in particular, and I think actually maybe the education market as a whole. There aren't really like you know single players. Khan Academy might be the best example of like a single player that's built you know a multi-decade brand um, that that is sort of like a full stack type product. Um, and even Khan Academy has really kind of stayed in their lane on you know what they're trying to build. Um, and so I think one of the things that's challenging is uh, you know the the in the in the trend of democratizing access, you can also end up in a world where you have thousands of like medium quality options without any, uh, and this is very different than your Peloton versus SoulCycle paradigm, um, but you have thousands of, you know, sort of mediocre options. And then as, and this is what I think is true in homeschooling today, um, you have a bunch of parents going, okay, well, I'm still stuck doing this, you know, spending hours and hours and hours trying to sift through all these options and figure out what's best for my kid. And sure, now I have access to it through the internet and I don't have to buy textbooks, but it's, you know, really the same problem, just transmitted into a different modality. So um, I think that's one thing that's very specific to probably EdTech and homeschooling, maybe other industries as well. Um, and we totally, totally buy the thesis that there is the potential for the best teachers in the world to, uh, you know, to be able to scale their impact on kids through the internet. And I think you see like Masterclass is doing a really interesting job of this where they sort of get celebrities, which are actually often not the best teachers. That's something that I think most people don't realize is that the people that are really good at something are often not the best people to teach you something. Um, but they sort of they sort of script a class, a really well-structured class for you. And then, you know, 100,000 people can watch, uh, you know, Steph Curry teach them how to dribble, uh, you know, or learn how to, you know, uh, smoke brisket or whatever it might be. And so for us, we think about community as the thing that we, the first thing that we can do that can be really, really magical. And we can use, uh, you know, the power of the internet to bring kids together, the kids that would never meet ordinarily in real life. And the thing that gets me really excited is that if you're a 14-year-old girl that is obsessed with molecular biology, um, you know, you in your small town or even in a big town, there might not be that many other 14, 13, 15-year-old you know, girls or anyone that's interested in that, that is, is interested in you and molecular biology. But, uh, you know, in the US and certainly in the world, there are probably hundreds or thousands of, of people that are roughly your age that are interested in that. And if you can connect the, you know, if you can connect that student to other people like that, you can unlock some really incredible learning experiences, hopefully over many, many years of working together around this shared interest. And so, for us, we think communities are, are sort of the best way to, as, as a first product, the best way to use the internet and use technology to unlock these really amazing experiences for kids. And so that's why, that's sort of why that was the natural place for us to start. And we also think it's one of the most challenging things, uh, you know, for first time homeschoolers is figuring out community for your kids and in a sort of COVID world uh, with sort of TBD on how long this is going to last in person is either not an option or it's really challenging. And so the idea of it being virtual, um, and the idea of parents being able to sort of give their kids access to this world that they can explore with projects and clubs they can join um, and things that are specifically tied to their interests where they can meet other kids that are also interested in that um, is really, really appealing and I think can have a big impact on those kids. Well, one of the things I really liked about the community is, again, from, from outside in, um, 
was the community seemed to have pretty non-traditional uh, non-traditional topics by you know traditional pedagogy uh, in the curricula. And I think when you take a step back, it's it's something to me that seems so obvious. You know, I've I've always questioned why don't our schools teach, you know, personal finance, mental health, right, negotiation, self awareness, all these things that you know we we obviously when you come to become a professional know are just so critical in in leading a career and, and candidly in leading a life. Um, it seems like such a large opportunity when you build a school on first principles. Talk a little bit more about how you're thinking about those actual topics, right? Or how you guys as a team thought through what those topics, you know, in those communities should be. And how does that, you know, there might be a, a frame of thinking today, and I imagine there's, you know, a different frame of thinking going forward, you know, on how those communities continue to extend out. Yeah. So we, our goal with the communities is to tie them really closely to what a kid is interested in. And so, for example, we have a video game community um, that you can join or a club, video game club, and you can join this video game club. Um, and actually what you're learning is you're learning how to code uh, mm. because you're building video games. Um, but it's not called the Learn to Club Code Club um, or the Computer Science Club. It's called the Video Game Club. And I think that is a pretty good example of how we think about this because we want to, the whole point is that we want to tie the experiences that kids are having in Primer um, you know, as closely as possible to what they are naturally and organically excited about. Um, and very few kids, you know, at a young age would be excited about the computer science club versus a lot of kids would be excited about a video game club. And so we think a lot about what are the things that we can help uh, expose kids to uh, through the through the lens of what they're already interested in. So for an example is how to give and receive feedback. And so, you know, a lot of products, a lot of ed tech products just have like sort of open comment sections where you can just like comment or chat or post responses to what people upload. Uh, but we're actually doing these highly structured responses for younger students where they can click an option of if you're the creator of an item and you're sharing, let's say you built a rocket in the inventions club and you're sharing some photos of your rocket and you're sharing the video of the rocket, you can actually select uh, why you're sharing it and what you want from the kids. So you can say, I want some feedback. You can say, I thought this was really cool. You can say you have a question, you can say you need some help, and then you can post whatever you have and other kids can actually see what your intent in sharing that information was. And then conversely, if I'm, on, if I'm on the kid that's watching that, I can click through a variety of options that say, wouldn't it be cool if dot, 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 and then write a comment, or have you thought about dot, 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 or I think it might work better if you dot, 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 or I really loved how you dot, 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 and then fill that out. And so for young kids, you start to actually build the sort of the, the, the habits around giving and receiving high quality feedback. And so we would never create a club that's, you know, how to give and receive feedback, but we do really value kids learning that. And that's an example of a life skill that's extremely valuable if you get that as a kid and don't have to learn that when you enter the workforce, um, that we want kids to be able to get just naturally through primer. And so, yeah, we, I mean, we'll, we're, we're thinking a lot about what are all the things like that, that you can sort of instill into the experience for kids. Um, and there's a lot of things like personal finance, um, you know, the, the idea of like mental health negotiation, all the things that you, that you mentioned, um, that you could start to sort of build into these, uh, into these clubs through the things that kids are already excited about. Um, and I think that will almost be like an endless journey for us. Um, all the cool things that we can instill in that. What have been, Ryan, what have been the most challenging aspects of, of building the business today? Uh, you know, understanding that you guys have, uh, you started it, you know, about a year ago or so. And, and what do you foresee as the biggest hurdles going forward? And, and the reason I ask that is, um, it's, it's funny, through the conversation we're having, it, it just makes so much sense the way you're framing it and what you're talking about. So it's, I think it can be easy to get diluted on the surface that this is an easy problem to solve. Um, and it's a, it's a non-trivial problem, right? There's a host of challenges on the back end. You know, most people aren't, aren't, uh, don't even begin to be familiar with. I mean, just the regulatory challenge 
you know, and compliance in and of itself as a whole area to tackle inconsistency across, you know, different states, different regulatory standards, et cetera. So when you think about, you know, where you are today, I imagine that there's, you know, certain components that are challenging, but really, as you think about how this becomes, you know, a large business, what do you foresee as the biggest hurdles? Yeah, I think so. The, there's certainly like some logistical and very pragmatic hurdles. So things like the regulatory challenges. So we have a tool that we launched um, called Primer Navigator, and you can enter your address, and we sort of give you this magic, uh, you know, everything you need to start homeschooling or, or be compliant in your in your local um, school, whatever your school district you're in, and whatever state you're in. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, it seems like a very simple product. It's actually extremely complicated on the back end. We worked with a legal team, spent tens of thousands of dollars, and basically created what I think is essentially the first database of its kind, where we, we know basically every single homeschool regulation for every single state and school district across the country, um, everything you have to do from record keeping perspective to notifying your school district, uh, to what subjects you need to teach, to any credentials that are required for parents to homeschool, et cetera. And so there's problems like that, but I don't actually think about those as very hard problems. Those are sort of just like, you know, you just kind of figure it out. And then once you figure it out, it's, you know, it's complexity, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's solvable complexity. I think the real challenge is that, um, you know, homeschool people who choose to homeschool are sort of uh, in they're by, by sort of design, they are, they're opting out of a, a system that is designed for the masses. And they're choosing this sort of like high, like high autonomy, high agency model for both themselves and for their kids. And so when you try to build something for a collection of you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people who have opted out of the sort of mass model and they want this high agency, high autonomy version, version of, of education, um, it's extremely challenging to not then sort of end up in a state where you're just recreating the thing that they left um, and then end up, you know, they, they sort of feel like, okay, well, the whole reason I'm homeschooling is so that I don't have to, you know, have someone else tell me what to do and I can do whatever I want and do what's best for my kid. And so we, for us, we're very, very focused on how do we create, um, how do we design these, these, these A, tools that are really useful for parents and then B, experiences that are really valuable for kids, but create a ton of white space and a ton of service area for kids to explore on their own. Um, not be prescriptive about how they do it or when they do it, and a ton of area, sort of room for kids to collide and uh, you know ideas to sort of form and and kids to work together in a way that we are not uh, you know we're not sort of directly facilitating um, and in a way that we aren't sort of prescribing to the, either the parents or to the kids how they have to work. And that is the core challenge. But if I thought of one thing that we're going to be like thinking about and it's going to be top of mind every week for the next, you know, 20, 30, however many years we're building this company. Uh, I really think that is going to be the tension and, and sort of having a stance where we're building products that do give parents sort of radical autonomy and do give kids radical agency over their education. Um, but do it in a way that, that obviously is one single product that they're all, uh, you know, able to use and get a lot of value from. I think that is, that is the unique problem uh, to the homeschooling market and for primer going forward. It's, it's really unique, and I, I like the way you framed it and pointed it out, because the, the question becomes at scale as you build more and more to, to have um, Primer be more accessible, does it start to fall into the traps of the, the, traditional, um, the traditional system, which is you know, optimizing for the lowest common denominator? Now, there's, there's certainly different things that get enabled with technology and, and a more personalized experience, but I think that tussle is, is, is really interesting. On, on the backdrop of that type of tussle, um, which countries or what are the most envir- uh, advanced kind of ecosystems around homeschooling in, in the world? And, and talk a little bit more about kind of what, you know, where the U.S. plays in that also. And, you know, if and 
if in any there are you know gaps to close um you know what might those what might closing those gaps look like yeah so the us is by far uh so on a raw number of homeschoolers um the us and india are, are about equal um hmm. and then uh, obviously on a per capita basis the us is uh is farther ahead um as far as a percentage percentage of total students homeschooling but what's interesting is that I think Asia in general um, places a much higher value on education. And so when you look at data around the percentage of income that parents are willing to spend on education um, or the, the flexibility that parents have to augment education, it's much more common uh, in a lot of Asian markets for parents to spend a way more money, but then also to like there was a, I saw an amazing uh, essay that was just documenting all the different sort of the, the, the views on education in Asia and talking about how there's teachers uh, in various Asian countries that will literally have billboards, uh, you know, to, like advertising their services to work with them. Um, and because they, they, they a, make that much money that they're able to do that because with the best teachers and then be parents are actually seeking out. And that's sort of like unthinkable in the U S that you would ever have that happen. Um, and so I think that in like for India, for example, I think a lot of parents, I've talked to um, that there are, are they, they, it's sort of a cultural, it's a cultural difference, but then it's also, I think, just a practical difference in the structure of education where augmenting and, um, you know, doing things outside of the system is much more common versus I think in the U.S., most parents uh, sort of view like, hey, the school, the school system is, you know, designed to educate my kid um, and that that is where it happens. And then, you know, there's after school sports, all these other things they do, but that's kind of where the education, that and the homework is where it happens. Um, and so I think that's kind of the, one of the key differences sort of globally. And I think the, the U.S., in terms of things that the U.S. needs to do to close the gap, I think one of the big challenges right now um, is the state-by-state -state regulations are, can be extremely complex, um, which I mentioned. And then specifically, um, there are certain states where you can get funding from, uh, from the government to homeschool, because if you're homeschooling, you're still paying taxes. You know, they go to the public schools that your kids are not going to. Um, and so it can be really challenging for single income families, obviously. And so there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of complexity on a per state basis. Um, and so I think from a, from a government perspective, I think standardization there, uh, would be really valuable, but I'm not sure there's any other sort of, uh, you know, there's not, there's not any more structural things that need to shift. It's mostly around, I think, building great tools for homeschool families and just more smart people, um, and great teams building tools for this market. I, I want to end the conversation, Ryan, on a quote that you used to start out the founding letter of primer um, and, and what it means to you. I, I found it really profound. The quote was, where some people measure progress and answers right per test or tests passed per year, we're more interested in Sistine Chapel ceilings per lifetime. Uh, I, I love that quote. Talk, talk a little bit more about what that means to you and, and why you started the founding letter of primer out with that. Yeah, so it comes from um, a guy named Alan Kay, and it was uh, it was a sort of essay paper he wrote uh, called "A Personal Computer for Children of All Ages." And my co-founder um, had read it and sent it to me very very early on when we were kind of exploring Primer. Like uh, we we had, weren't officially started the company, I hadn't officially started working on it yet. Um, and he was, Alan was describing uh, it was basically this paper about this thing called the Dyna Book. Um, and it, it highly recommend that you read it. But um, what resonated for me so much with that and, and for my co-founder as well, um, this is actually quite personal for me. My parents, um, when they talked about our education, they, they always framed it and they always told us explicitly that they cared way, way more about what we were like as 30 or 40 year olds than they cared about what we were like as 12 year olds. 
And so, you know, my dad would always say, I care way more that at 30 years old, you're someone who, you know, loves learning, who knows how to think for yourself, is very articulate, uh, you know, is, is creative, is doing something that you love, has found your purpose, you know, all those things. Then I care about whether or not you're like on a, some grade level equivalency at, you know, grade five for writing. And it's really, I think it's about two things. So one, it's about optimizing for a different time horizon, um, which is what my parents did. And then two, it's about optimizing for a different goal over that time horizon. And when I read this quote, um, it, it, it was kind of like a, it resonated with me in the same way that the things that my parents told me at, you know, about their goals for my education and then also the goals that I have for my kids' education um, is just really reframing the way that we think about what success is. Mm-hmm. Um, for education. And this, this also, you know, ties back into what I said about, I think, you know, the ideal education is, you know, a kid, an education system that allows a kid to reach their potential. And so, you know, we think about this quote, as, this is actually like, we write this, we write Sistine chapels on like most of our whiteboards back when we, you know, could go into the office and do jam sessions. Uh, it's the password to our Wi-Fi. Like we really think about this quote a lot. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really about reframing what the goal of education is for kids. And, um, you know, unlocking all the non-traditional paths that are required, uh, you know, for something like a Sistine Chapel to exist. Um, and obviously it's not about the specific Sistine Chapel, but it's the idea that, you know, a multi-year, multi-decade, uh, you know, project that, that is the labor of a lifetime. You know, how do you unlock, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of kids in each generation to be able to go pursue things like that um, and all the non-standard sort of paths that they have to go down to get there. Um, and so that's, that's why that quote, uh, you know, has, has really resonated uh, and been really important for us. Well, Ryan, this has been, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've, I've learned a ton from you and, and really excited, you know, to watch how you and, and the team think about the future of homeschooling. I'm glad you were able to make the time, you know, thanks. Thanks again for joining us and, and really enjoyed having you on today. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.